Take her away, Tom. Everybody, say hi to Tommy. Hey, Tommy boy. <laughs> He's hiding in the background. Amen. Camp Grizzly, Flip 180, you can head out the door for 20, for 15 minutes. We'll have to get you working in children's church. <laughs> Amen. Well, if you got your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read a passage and then just going to jump right in. I'm going to do my best to get it all in. So if I talk really fast, you'll have to go to the podcast. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Everybody says, amen. amen. That's truth. Those are the words of Jesus, amen. Now, just by a show of hands, don't need to say anything, just raise your hand. If you are aware that we are currently in a cultural war, if you're aware of that, raise your hand right now. We are in a cultural war, and it's actually been raging for probably 50 years or more. And it's a war that is, that is against our nation's Christian heritage. It's a war that it's uh, against even the biblical accounts of our origins as created human beings... It's a war against our biblical convictions about unborn human life as being sacred and precious. It's a war against our biblical beliefs about human sexuality being for only one man and one woman in the confines of marriage. It's a war against our biblical values of faith and family. And it's a war that is against our freedom of religious expression. We are at war. And whether or not you're engaging the enemy, the enemy is engaging you. And you know, it's a foundational biblical truth that God expects his people to join him on his mission to redeem and transform this lost world that we all live in. Now, the problem is, is that a lot of Christians today, they want to limit their mission to just the saving of souls, but ignore the whole changing of culture part. 
you know, and, and what this does is it leads many Christians to believe that, that engaging the culture in the arenas of either government or education or science or entertainment, whatever, it's, it really becomes deemed unimportant or even at worst a distraction. And so we have this tendency to erect a wall of separation between things that we call sacred and things that we call secular. Sacred being the religious things, the holy things, the godly things, and then secular being every other part of your life, your job, your school, whatever it is. We have this tendency to build this wall between those two things. And one of the most devastating problems that's hindering the church is when it comes to being salt and light. When it comes to, to making impact in our communities or our state or even our nation. And I want you to know this is a false approach to Christianity. Say, this is false. This isn't Christianity. It has serious consequences. Now, if we do not, the people of God, if we don't take on the responsibility that Jesus himself gave us to function both as salt and as light, then our culture it really has no other result but to become completely corrupt and spiritually dark. Now, here's really the bottom line. Because of this false wall that we erect or, or others erect for us, this wall of separation between the secular and the sacred, we have handed over the culture and society to the powers of sin and of darkness by default. Because there's a wall. We're not allowed to cross it. You don't cross over here. We don't go over there. So, when we think about culture, one of the things we've got to think about is our worldview. What is a worldview, you know? I shared on this a while back, several months ago, but a worldview is just, it's the big picture that you have. It's, it's, it's the basic set of beliefs that, or, or the convictions that you um, have from which you look at and make sense of the world. That's what a worldview is. Your, your beliefs and your convictions that help you kind of understand what's going on in culture. I mean, think of it like a, a pair of sunglasses. You know, have everybody heard you, you, some people wear rose-colored glasses, right? Everything's cheery, rosy, happy. A worldview is like a pair of sunglasses. It, it colors how you see the world. For example, if you look at the value of human life through glasses that are tinted with the belief that we are a unique creation of a loving God, then you will arrive at one view of abortion. However, if your glasses are tinted with the belief that man was simply evolved as a result of chance, well, then you're going to have a different view of abortion. So your worldview 
it really matters. So what's a Christian worldview? At the core of a genuine Christianity, a Christian worldview is the personal relationship that we have with Jesus. That we acknowledge, that we see the world through the lens that Jesus is the Savior of the world and Jesus is Lord of all. And so, part of our biblical worldview, it also has to have this understanding that Jesus expects us, his followers, to be able to articulate the truth of the Bible. And so it's those core realities, those core teachings that that should determine the way you are looking at the world, the way you're interpreting what you're hearing and what you're seeing. So a Christian worldview is a set of beliefs and convictions shaped by our relationship with Jesus and defined by the Holy Scriptures. Is that the kind of worldview you have? Unfortunately, very few people who claim to be Christians actually have a Christian worldview. In fact, only 4% of Americans have a biblical worldview as the basis of their decision-making. And that's based on a national survey done by George Barna. Now, I'm not going to go into all the statistics. I did that when I talked about worldview months and months ago. But I do want to say is that only when we have a biblical worldview that we can actually see the current culture war for what it really is. See, when you have a biblical worldview, you, you understand that the cultural war that we're in right now is a continuation of a cosmic war that has been fought since the beginning of time. And it's a cosmic war between the sovereign God and one of his created things. We know him as Satan. He's the adversary. He is the arch enemy of God and of your soul. And in the cosmic war, we have our commander in chief, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has called us out. We have been given the mission to join him in his continuing mission to redeem and ultimately to restore the world. We have been equipped with the indwelling power of God's Holy Spirit. And our Lord's marching orders are very clear. If you don't know, Matthew chapter 28 
Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have, what? Commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Can someone say amen to that? We've got to understand that our mission is not only to partner with God in leading people to salvation, but our mission is also to help bring individuals under the rulership of Christ as Lord. Lots of people get saved, they get converted, they get fire insurance, but Jesus has not been made Lord of their life. See, people who are under the reign of Jesus Christ should have an influence in the families that they are a part of. In the culture that they're a part of, the society, their nation, their state. People under the lordship of Jesus should be having impact where they live. It should be not just a... a a kind of byproduct, it actually should be intentional. You should be living on purpose under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16, Jesus illustrates this intentional influence. And he uses two words that we've already shared, Two metaphors to describe the very essence of what we are to do and to be as his followers. You see, our impact in the world is described by two words, salt and light. Everybody say that, salt and light. So what is salt? Why would Jesus say, I want you to be the salt of the earth? Well, first of all, I'll give you a little science lesson if you didn't know much about salt. It's essential for life. Without salt, the fluids in our bodies could not be kept in proper balance. In fact, pure salt was such a valuable commodity in the ancient world that in the Greek world, slaves were actually purchased with salt. And in the Roman world, actually the soldiers were literally paid their salary with salt. That's how important it was. We even, the English word of the word salary that we have, it actually comes from the Latin salaria. And guess what salaria in Latin means? Salt. So if you've ever wondered where the phrase, he's not worth his salt, comes from, Now you know. Right there. And there is an abundance of salt in the world. In fact, the oceans contain about a quarter pound of salt for every gallon of water. And actually, and this, I didn't know this, this blew me away. If salt were not present in the oceans, the oceans would become rotten cesspools. Salt is essential. 
And when Jesus called us salt and light, he meant you are indispensable for what I want to do on your planet. Now, not only is salt indispensable, but it's actually, it's a vital function. Its vital function is only performed when it's made available, when it's sacrificed. Salt does what it does when it dissolves. It does what it does only when it gives of itself. Only when it is dissolved does it actually perform its function and make an impact. See, salt exercises its influence by the sacrifice of itself. You see, for us, the only way we're going to make an impact in this world, it's only, it's only going to happen to the extent that we make ourselves available. Only to the extent that we give ourselves to be used of God. Something else that salt does. Salt penetrates. If you take a pinch of salt and you sprinkle it in a glass of water, it will penetrate and permeate the entire glass of water. Now, unfortunately, as I've already mentioned, since we've erected this, this wall of separation between sacred things and secular things, We end up coming to church on Sunday just to salt the salt. Think about that. It's like you went to your garage where there's a pile of salt and you went, oh, it needs a little more. And we think that that's the end of our responsibility. However, Jesus didn't call us to be the salt of children's church. He didn't call us to be the salt of the sanctuary, salt of the worship team, whatever. He didn't call us that. See, God, Jesus called us to be the salt of the earth. And as the salt of the earth, our job is to penetrate and permeate all of it. It is your job and my job to penetrate and permeate your neighborhood, your workplace, your classrooms, the gym, the restaurant. Every human institution on the earth should be permeated and penetrated by salty Christians. 
Now, here's something else salt does. Salt promotes flavor. This is my favorite use of salt. Some would even say I'm bent on high blood pressure. I doubt that. But I love what salt does to everything. Mashed potatoes and pizza and veggies and steak, you name it. Salt promotes it all. Just takes it from here and takes it to a whole nother level. It's completely wonderful. And, and here's the thing, that as salt, it lends flavor to food. Well, guess what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to be lending flavor to the lives of others. Sadly, from the world's perspective, though, they see Christianity as actually taking out all the flavor of life. You know, Jesus wasn't that way at all. In fact, Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, the second half of verse 10, he says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. You know, Jesus, he was so, so magnetic and so engaging and so flavorful that common people flocked to wherever he was. And as Jesus brought out the full flavor of life for those around them, guess what you should be doing? You should be bringing out the full flavor of Jesus Christ in your world. Something else that salt does is it, pre it preserves. Salt, when it's doing its job, it actually holds back corruption and hinders rot. Now, Jesus, he lived in a day when there were no deep freezers. There were no double-wide fridges with, you know, all the refrigeration that we have. So, in his day, salt was actually the only thing that prevented fruit, food from going bad. So, salt, when it's doing its job, it preserves from contamination. Salt delays decay. And as followers of Jesus, we must therefore act as a preservative influence to help stem the tide of corruption that's trying to overtake our nation. To stand against impurity, to defeat the decay, and to retard the rottenness of this world. See, that, that preserving and, and preventative influence, it has to be applied not just to Sunday morning, it's got to be applied in the entertainment industry, in, in the newspapers, in government, business, medicine, every area of life, every level of life. Jesus is telling us that, that our righteous presence, say my righteous presence, 
It's absolutely essential to prevent decay and rottenness in my world. Salt also purifies. Salt actually has a medicinal quality to it. Now, here's the thing, though. (laughs) When you apply salt to a wound, yet while it heals, guess what it does? Ooh, it hurts. I mean, have you ever gotten sweat or salt into a cut or a wound? Oh, my goodness. It stings and burns. Well, here's the thing. You see, when the truth of God's word is rubbed into the open wounds of sinful society, it's going to sting and hurt before it heals. You want to know why they hate you like Jesus promised? All men will hate you because of me. Because when we bring the salt, sometimes it stings and it burns. I mean, think about the prophet Elijah. You know, I bet he was a quite an irritation to the wicked king Ahab. You know, when you function as salt, sometimes your very presence is going to irritate the people who are of the world. In John chapter 15 and verse 18 and 19, Jesus said this. He said, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Salt irritates. It burns. But it purifies. You know, people are always talking about what's wrong with America, and even there's a lot of Christians, and, you know, some would say that it's the homosexual agenda that's destroying America. Some would say it's abortion advocates promoting murder, and some say it's liberal educators and judges. Some would say it's Hollywood and the media promoting ungodly lifestyles. Now, certainly all those things are doing their part flawlessly. But do you know what the really the biggest problem with America is? Well, if you haven't figured it out yet, large part of the blame is at the feet of saltless Christians. Saltless saints. That's where the real problem is. The problem is in me. The problem is in you. The problem is in our church. The problem is in all the churches all over this nation. Salt has lost its savor in a world that's rotting and headed for hell. 
I ask God to help us take up the challenge that Jesus gave us to be salt. Not just the salt of the four walls of this building, to be the salt of the earth. Salt that penetrates and permeates every area of life, sacred and secular. Salt that preserves society from judgment by preventing decay and the rot of sin. Salt irritates and it burns our culture even while it's purifying and healing. If there was ever a day, if there was ever a time for us to function like salt, guess what? It's now. It's right now. It's today. So Jesus said we're supposed to be like light. Light is the essence of what we are to do and to be as Christ followers. In fact, the Bible tells us plainly that God is love and God is light. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says this. He goes, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light reveals, light exposes, light illuminates, light guides, light warms, it penetrates, and it conquers darkness. In fact, light is essential for life. The light of the sun, it powers our food chain. You know, it's essential. It starts with photosynthesis, and it gives plants the ability to grow, which in turn become food for us or food for the animals that we like to eat. Life could not exist without light. And so this points to the fact of how indispensable you and I are as Christians in this culture. I mean, scientifically speaking, light is energy, and energy is the ability to do a work. And when the light of Jesus Christ shines, guess what? Things start happening. Sin gets exposed in the light. The way of salvation is revealed in the light. Truth is proclaimed. Life is transformed. Light has a tremendous influence. But I'm going to focus just on a couple. First of all, light reveals. You know, John describes Jesus as the true light that gives light to every man coming into the world. Jesus is the great revealer of truth because he is truth. Say that with me. He is truth. One more time. He is truth. Light brings revelation, sometimes negative. Some, like exposing sin. Sometimes light 
It's positive, like exposing truth. The Bible tells us that God's word is a flaming torch of divine revelation. In fact, in Psalm 119, verse 105, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And yet our generation is stumbling in the dark. Asking questions like, what is truth? What's reality? See, our, our culture is one that is ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of truth. And so much of the vast majority of Americans even believe the lie of Satan that, you know, there is no such thing as absolute truth. In other words, truth for you may be your truth, but may not be truth for me. You know, truth is just in the eye of the beholder, right? So in this day and age, we need to let people know that truth is not what I say it is. Truth's not what you think it is. Truth is what God's word says it is. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, verse 17. He said, your truth, or your word, is truth. You see, God's word, it actually has the answer to every moral crisis we are facing today. Do you want to know the truth about abortion? Well, read Proverbs 6.17 and it'll talk to you about how God hates the shedding of innocent blood. You want to know the truth about homosexuality? Leviticus 18.22 tells us it's an abomination unto the Lord. You want to know the truth about why our education system is failing, why SAT scores are failing, why kids are killing kids and children are having children? It's because we've kicked the light of the world out of the classroom. Psalm 119 verse 30 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. We have to be defenders and revealers of truth. We are to be light that shines on a path for the, the, the world to see. A path that leads up and out of darkness. Out of the deception of sin. Light reveals. And here's the other thing I want to say about light. Light overcomes. In John chapter 1, verse 5, it speaks of Jesus, and it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So what that's saying is some people understand the light. Some people don't understand the light. Why is that? Well... Mostly by choice. You know, it's 
It's like some agnostics. An agnostic is someone who um, isn't an atheist. An atheist says there is no God. An agnostic says, I don't know if there's a God. Who can really know? But, you know, it's, it's kind of like how some agnostics can't understand Christ for the same reason like a, a thief can't find a cop. They don't want to. You, you get that analogy? You want me to tell it again? Atheists and agnostics, they, they can't find Christ the same way a thief can't find a cop. I'm not interested. Now, I like how the, the RSV version of 1 John 5 reads. It says it like this. It says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Oh, I like that. The New Living Translation says, the darkness could not extinguish it. Could not put it out. See, all of the darkness in this world and of hell itself, it cannot and it will not put out the light of Jesus Christ. I don't care what laws get passed. I don't care how dark the nation becomes. It cannot put it out. And you, my friends, are the light of the world. Being light is our responsibility as Christian followers, as followers of Christ. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. And then he passed the torch to us. And then he says, you are the light of the world. It's a fundamental principle that we must impact our world as Jesus did and be light in darkness. In fact, the you in that verse of you are the light of the world, it is an, it's an emphatic you. So, so really the better way to, that, to say that you are the light of the world is like this. You and you alone are the light of the world. Not Pastor Eric. He'll be the light for us. You and you alone are the light of the world. That's how strong that statement is supposed to be understood. God is depending on you and me to shine his light in this sin-darkened world. You can't pass the buck to anyone. It's our exclusive responsibility. If we don't shine, who's going to? It's our duty. It's our privilege. It is our exclusive responsibility. That means there's no pinch hitters. <laughs> well, let Mike do it. He knows how to talk about Jesus. Well, no, you better figure it out. We're not pinch hitting for you. There's no hired guns in the kingdom. So let the professional Christians go tell the world about Jesus. See, every one of you are the light of the world. 
I have a sphere of influence that you don't. You have a sphere of influence that I don't. So the responsibility to reach all people rests squarely on all of us. Now, I realize that this can be intimidating. I I realize that it can be scary, but God gives all of us certain amount of talents and abilities according to his divine purpose for our lives. And that means by that gift or talent or skill or knowledge you have, you can shine right where you're at. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, I'm not much. I can't speak well. I don't sing. Don't have any money. No one likes me. I'm not all that smart or gifted. Here's your beer. Go cry in it. It doesn't matter. None of those are okay excuses. First of all, none of them are true. So there's light for that dark cloud you love to live under. You're not talentless. You're not loveless. None of that matters. You are light and you have to shine. It's, and here's the thing. It's not even your light. It's the light of Jesus Christ. It's his light anyway. God's just calibrated your watts. So here's what that statement means. (laughs) The nervous laugh of, I don't get that analogy. (laughs) Amen, Tom. Here's what it means. God's calibrated your watts. Meaning, if you're just a, a candle... Glowing softly in a home somewhere. Or you're a laser beam that can actually cut the hinges off the gates of hell. You're still light. You're important to God. And he wouldn't have brought you to this planet if he didn't have a plan for your life. God has made an investment in you. That he expects full return. He has given you talents. He's given you abilities. He expects you to use everything you've got for his glory. So I beg you, do not miss where Jesus wants us to make an impact as, as light. It's in the world. As I've said already, one of our greatest obstacles in the church is that the greatest concentration of salt and light is in the church building from 10 to noon or 1230. I say again, Jesus didn't call us to be the salt of Sunday morning. He didn't call us to be the light of the church. It's to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. 
And that world, that world that we're talking about, it's your businesses. It's the classroom. It's government. Neighborhoods, communities, that's where we should be hindering the rot. That's where we should be dispelling darkness. And we need to understand that the church is not primarily the place of ministry. The church is the base of ministry. I'm going to say that again so you can figure this one out. The church is not the primary place of ministry. It is the primary base of ministry. The church is not the primary place of ministry. It is the base of ministry. You come here, you get inspired. You get built up so that the real ministry starts. Sadly, many of us are getting very used to the dark. There's a slow and subtle and sinister brainwashing process that's going on where we're all gradually being desensitized to the dimming conditions of our culture. Little by little, sin has been made to appear less sinful. There's really no more black and white. It's all just a dingy shade of gray. So much so that there are many in the church today who are, you know, calling us to broad-minded tolerance. A peaceful coexistence with evil. Don't mind cancer. It'll be okay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about the, your soul being raped by these things. You'll get over it. Just tolerate it. Well, I have to remind us that the Bible says there is no fellowship between light and darkness. There can be no agreement between good and evil. When the world wants you to be broad-minded and tolerant, what they're actually wanting is for you to crucify your conscience and for you to compromise with evil. In this dark day, it is time to take a stand. It's time that we start, stop cursing the darkness and we just start turning on some light switches. Amen? It's time to quit whining and start shining. And Jesus has commanded us to be both salt and light. And here's the way it's supposed to work. See, we as Christians, we're supposed to be sharing our faith. And when people come to know Jesus as Savior, then their worldview should start to change. And when the, then, then when those of us who have a biblical worldview... Um, start to reach a tipping point in our nation, guess what happens? Things change in the laws of our land. 
when we reach critical mass, we start to turn as a nation. And that's not a theocracy. That's called the democratic process. It's the way that slavery was abolished. It's the way racial uh, segregation was banished from the law books. And it's the way every Christian can help restore America to its biblical foundation again. Being salt and light, it's not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and. And if we exercise our influence in the proper balance, we'll actually start to make tremendous impact for the kingdom of heaven. And you know, this week is one of those opportunities to be salt and light. See, this week we have an opportunity to actually go vote. It's Tuesday. We have an opportunity to elect those who most closely reflect a biblical worldview. And here's the thing, you know what? Forget Republican, forget Democrat. You know what? There's nothing in the Bible that says anything about Democrats and Republicans. Did you know that? Not in there. Those are man-made systems. Our political values and identity are to be based on Jesus Christ and Him alone. Nothing else. And we have a responsibility to vote for people who try to live and lead and legislate according to our biblical worldview. And if you've never voted, now's your chance. Now you can actually be a part of changing culture. I encourage you to sign up and vote. Because your vote does matter. In fact, I'll give you some statistics. In 1801, one vote in the U.S. House broke the tie between the presidential candidates of Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. They got Burr elected. And by the way, did you know that he was later accused of treason? In 1839... One vote made Marcus Morton governor of Massachusetts. One vote. And it earned him the nickname of Landslide Morton. In 1868, one vote saved President Andrew Johnson from being removed from office. In 1876, one vote in the Electoral College gave Rutherford B. Hayes the presidency. Your vote, it really matters. And I want to say this. I say pray. I'm asking you guys to pray. Pray that God gives wisdom and revelation to our local and national leaders. In fact, Paul said in 1 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, he says, 
I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That means you should be praying for Barack Obama. You should be praying for your congressmen and women. You should be praying for the judges who are overturning laws or supporting them. Governors, mayors, councilmen, school board people. Everybody should get your prayers. Law enforcement. Anyone who has a place of authority, Paul has told us by the word of God, pray for them. And we don't pray that they would continue in their wickedness, you know. What we pray is that God would give them wisdom from heaven. Wisdom to lead our nation according to a Christian worldview, Christian principles rooted in biblical authority. And above all, we should be praying that they would come to Christ. Oh, God, save Barack Obama. Because it's only through a relationship with Jesus as Lord that they're actually going to be able to lead in a way that's biblical. In a way that we as believers can live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and in holiness. Church, I just I beg you today, we have to be salt and light. So I'm going to ask you this week to go vote. There's a, a handout in your bulletin. You can go to a website and look up your candidates and see how they've voted on issues that relate to your biblical worldview. I'm going to ask you to put down your Democratic and Republican malarkey okay just stop it be a christian be a christian who votes on the word of god pray for our leaders and be a voice amen let's pray father in the name of jesus i just Thank you, Father, that you've called us to be salt and light. Thank you, God, that you have given us the task, the responsibility. You have commanded us to go into the world, to all the earth, and be salt and light. And I pray today, God, that we would be honest with ourselves, that we have not done a good job. And so I say, forgive me, Father. I repent, Lord, for not being light in my neighborhood, for not being salt in my neighborhood, God. I ask you, Father, to forgive me. And I pray, God, that today you would bring this truth deep into our hearts, that we might walk this out, that we might stem the tide, that, God, we might turn our nation back to you, Father. That there would be an end, God, to abortion, Lord. That there would be a, uh, an end to, to gay marriage, Father. That things would turn, Father, for your glory. According to your word. According to your ways. 
We thank you, God, that you are faithful, that your light shines within us, that we would be a people brightly shining, bringing the flavor of life to every situation we go to, God. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom that we have in this awesome nation, that we can vote, that we can make a difference, that we can speak out and declare truth as the word of God declares it. So I pray, Father, anoint us with spirit of wisdom and revelation. Lord, anoint us, God, to go out this week to vote, to not take the process lightly, but to be a part of the solution for our nation. We thank you for this, God. We give you all the glory and the honor in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You guys have a great day. If you need prayer, the altar team will be up front. Be blessed in Jesus' name.